Well, it's good to be back together again for our third week of Wellspring. So welcome. It's really nice to see your sweet faces this early in the morning. Um, Let's go before the Lord one more time. Um, Father, thank you that when we were God-haters running from you, in your mercy, you saved us. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of your great love and mercy toward us. Thank you for these precious sisters in Christ. Thank you for their new life in Christ and the gospel. Thank you that you have saved us all into a body. And now, Father, we come to you as needy, dependent children, and we ask... um, that your spirit would impact each heart here this morning with your word. Father, we want to come under your word and we want to submit to your word. And so we ask, Lord, that we would have humble, teachable hearts this morning and that we would um, not be distracted by anything that happens this morning or what's going on later today, but that we would spend the next hour just soaking in what your word has to say about our own hearts, about how our hearts impact our home with your word. Lord, I pray that we would leave here changed women, just eager to um, display the gospel in our homes. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's get started with turning our notebooks over and let's look at the reason that we're here, Wellspring's purpose, and the disciplines, like we will do every time we're together. And we are here to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts. We're here to encourage one another to do that, to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus with his word. And there's a purpose in that, so that we live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. That's why we're here And we focus on three disciplines. The first discipline is our heart. Discipline one, the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. We're here to encourage one another to lead our hearts, to draw near with our hearts to him in his word, to worshipfully pursue God through his word with an expression of love for him with expression and love and need for Jesus and you know what it just takes discipline it takes discipline that worship would take place when we read our Bibles right and I gotta tell you I am so thankful for Wellspring and the opportunity to be encouraged year after year to prioritize my life with these disciplines as I look back over my life It grieves me to think um, of the times over the years, especially when I was young and a new believer, when I missed um, being with the Lord and making Him, our time with Him in His Word, a priority. And so um, I don't want you to have those regrets, so praise God that we're all here encouraging one another to do that. Because when we are disciplined in shepherding our hearts as we meet with Him in His Word, that's when we're strengthened, right? We're strengthened in our love and in our affection for Jesus so we can serve him and we can uh, obey him and so that we can think rightly and so that we can guard our hearts. And we can shepherd our hearts when we close our Bible. Shepherding our hearts doesn't end um, when we close our Bible. And it's so important to spend time with God in his word. But remember, shepherding our hearts just doesn't end there, our hearts need shepherding with what we know from his word constantly. It's an ongoing shepherding and strengthening of our inner man, our hearts. And you know what? Life is busy. Life is busy, yes. And seasons will continually change. It, it just never changes. But keep fighting to make meeting with him in his word a priority Um, We shouldn't even think that it's an option uh, to not meet with him. And it just, it takes, it takes discipline and we'll probably be fighting for the rest of our lives. Um, So we have to be purposeful. We have to be diligent with this. 
And then the second discipline is about our, uh, the relationships in our homes. Um, discipline two, and that's, we'll be focusing on discipline two this morning. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And, you know, it just can be so easy just to skip over the, um, or leapfrog over the relationships um, and the people that are in our home. Uh, to get to other things, to get to other, to get to ministry, to get to other people, and neglect those relationships right there in our homes, or neglect um, those who enter into our homes, those closest um, to us. So we have to be concerned first about the relationships that God has placed right there in our home and with those who enter into our home. So as we live gospel transformed formed lives, it begins with our sphere of influence, right where God has placed us. And when we talk about household relationships, discipline two, um, we, throughout the lesson, I, I might say household relationships or home or um, discipline two, but it's important to understand that discipline two is for everyone. Regardless of season of life, regardless of circumstance, there isn't anyone that discipline too doesn't include. Whether you're single, whether you're living at home with your parents still, whether you have roommates, whether you're married with or without children, whether you're empty nesters, whether you're living alone, grandparents, whatever your circumstance, discipline too applies to everyone. And we want to give off an aroma in our home um, of someone who loves God and meets with him in his word and who delights in him and then lives out gospel-transformed lives there. Um, we want to make an impact for the gospel right there. And, it, you know, i got to say it's so encouraging to see so many of you being faithful, diligently caring for your hearts and caring for those in your home and those who enter, and you're an example to me. Um, our kids are grown and we're empty nesters, and not, in all honesty, I have many regrets in this area. And so moms um, with children at home, you know, I don't want you to have the same regrets. You have such a gospel imp- uh, opportunity before you, um, and we all do, but I don't want you to miss that opportunity. Uh, because looking back, I wasn't as diligent as I wish I'd been. But you know what? God is so gracious. He is so gracious in that. Um, it's never too late to start. Never. Um, the third discipline is ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. This is how we minister the gospel to people in the church. It's how the body cares for the body to help the body grow And this includes our small groups, um, mentoring relationships, friendships, next generation relationships, and Wellspring. And this is how we care for those outside of the church as well. We're going to be stepping into people's lives as we continue to grow in Discipline 1 and Discipline 2. All right. So even after just two weeks... Um, We're beginning to see just how critical it is that we care for our hearts with God's word. And like I said, this morning we're going to move right into seeing how important God places on our homes, discipline too. And what we want to see this morning is um, God's inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes. The home is where the quality of our own heart shepherding is put on display. And we're going to look at nine categories to help us see God's heart for the household relationships. So what we're going to do is we're going to survey scripture this morning. We're going to, we're going to start with the Old Testament and we're going to work our way forward into the New Testament. And we do that because that's how God gradually unfolded his revelation to us. And we want to work our way from front to back so that we get a full sense of God's heart. And the first category we're going to look at this morning is the relationship between the heart and household relationships. So let's start by looking at Exodus 20.12. You can turn there. As we look at this, we need to remember, Christians are not under Mosaic law. We don't obey the command to honor our father and mother because it's in the Ten Commandments, but we do obey it because Jesus taught it in Matthew 15. 
Also, when we see a promise in the Old Testament, most often it's given to Israel, not to Christians, unless it's repeated in the New Testament. And it doesn't mean there's no value in Mosaic law at all. It does have value um, because uh, it reveals God's heart. All of Scripture is revelation. All of Scripture is profitable. All of Scripture provides examples uh, of which we can learn from. And it shows us God's character, and we don't want to miss that. But we want to obey for the right reasons. We obey because we're under Christ. We exalt Christ because he is greater than Mosaic law. Now, in Exodus 20, 12, um, or Exodus 20:12 is right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. The, uh, verse 12 is actually the fifth commandment. Uh, The first four commandments are concerned with Israel's relationship with God. They're vertical. And then we see this turn, a different focus in the remaining commandments. They're horizontal, which means they focus on... Oh, horizontal, this way. um, Means they focus on relationships between people. So we're going to look at those commandments that focus specifically on household relationships. So let's look at verse 12. Honor your father and mother... Um, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And here he's speaking of the land that's promised to Israel. So we see the first human relationship, the first household relationship God deals with is the parent-child relationship. The way children are to respond to their parents, they're to show them honor. And in verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And here we see God is focused on the husband-wife relationship in the home. In the verse 17, God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household when he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Israel was to be concerned that they weren't looking wrongly at another person's household. They were to focus on being content in their own household, to think rightly about everything and everyone in and associated with the household. It's very interesting. The first four commandments address Israel's relationship with God, how they're to relate to him, and the very next thing that he addresses is the household. As God's giving Mosaic law, he had very specific expectations for the household and those foundational relationships. So we see God's priority and what's important to him. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 9. And this is where Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, but they rebelled and they wouldn't go into the, uh, take possession of the land that God was giving them. And so they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And because of that, they weren't allowed to go into the land until that generation had, that had rebelled died off. So now 40 years later, Moses is talking to their children who are now grown who were told originally to honor their parents. Now many of them are parents. And Moses, he's at the end of his life, and he's reteaching them the law before they enter the promised land. Starting in verse 9, he says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. That's discipline one spelled out for Israel. But make, known, uh, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. That's discipline two. Do you see how he ties the heart to the home there? And in verse two, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God on Horeb when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. So the burden for the Israelite household was for parents to make known to their children what God did in redeeming them from Egypt. God's heart was that they would take care of their own heart with his word and teach their children. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 6. Um, here. Yeah, Deuteronomy 6. And these verses are called the Shema from the Hebrew word to hear, to listen, to obey, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you tell today shall be on your heart. There's discipline one. God connect. We see God's connecting love for him with his word. And inseparable from discipline one is discipline two. Verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So do you see, do you hear God's heart for the household in that? He's saying, your household Israel is to be dominated by concern for my word. There's to be this inseparable connection between love the Lord your God with all your heart and teach them to your children. Discipline one, our heart, and discipline two, our household, are inseparable. God wanted Israel to impress his words on their own hearts and on the hearts of the next generation. How? By living them out on a daily basis. By talking about them, by thinking about them. They're to be constantly on their minds and on their hearts. The older generation was to constantly model their complete loyalty to God in every way possible. So let's turn now to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. And um, we will see the influence that our heart has on our home. And uh, this uh, passage actually is really interesting because we'll see the influence that flows both ways. Hearts influence our home, um, but also our home uh, to our hearts. Let's look at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, and then he lists seven nations that are greater and stronger than them. And verse 2, he says, And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, and you shall utterly, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. So the Israelites are told, and when they enter the promised land, they're to completely destroy the inhabitants. They're to make no treaties with them. They're um, to show them no mercy. And then furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Well, we'll see this played out a little bit later. Verse 4, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. The consequence then uh, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. God's telling them that there can be uh, no household in Israel where an Israelite marries a foreigner who worships another god. God makes it very clear the kind of household that he desires. And this kind of idolatrous household is not to exist in Israel. Why? Because hearts are easily led astray. Hearts get turned away from Yahweh. So the burden in Israel was on the fathers and mothers to not allow their children into this kind of marriage, to teach them in such a way that their children, the next generation, would want to follow God, that they would not want to abandon him. And part of that meant not marrying uh, others, people who followed other gods. So we see it goes both way, ways. Um, what's going on in our homes, it does influence and impact our hearts. In the same way that our heart does influence and impact our home. Uh, we'll see uh, the heart's influence again in our next passage. Turn to Psalm 78. Here's an example of the inseparable connection between what we do with our hearts and the impact that it makes on the next generation. Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from, our chil- from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, 
that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. That's already four generations. Four generations right there. Why? Verse 7. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments not, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. They were not to follow after the example of their parents who failed to watch over their hearts, who quickly forgot about God and who became disloyal to him. He says their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. Here's a father telling his household, do not be like the prior generations who did not care for or did not shepherd their hearts. Children, don't be like your great-grandparents who did not do this. That's basically what he's saying. Sobering, isn't it? To think that the next generation would say something like that about us. We certainly don't want that, do we? Even though we know this passage is addressed to Israel, we know that there are, uh, there's a principle that we can take away as believers today. We just need to be convinced that God cares about our hearts and the impact that we make on the next generation. All right, let's turn, let's go to the New Testament now, and let's turn to Ephesians 6. <coughs> Ephesians 6, and we will see again, God addresses this inseparable relationship between the heart and household relationships. This is a repeat of the fifth commandment, but now brought under the authority of Christ and his church by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So first Paul addresses the children. Obey your parents. How? In the Lord. Not simply out of fear of punishment. The the motivation for obedience is out of a reverential love. For God. Children need to be taught to obey and honor their parents in a way that honors the Lord. And you know, we know that God is the one who sovereignly does a work in a heart. It's the parents' responsibility to teach them and to shepherd them with the gospel. Um, and you know, I just got to say, we know much of the teaching is modeled as well, right? And then verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so parents in particular must be faithful with discipline and instruction in the Lord so as not to frustrate their children. And (laughs) this requires much heart shepherding um, on our part, right? It does. So we see again, God is demonstrating that in the New Testament, the household relationships matter to him in Christ. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 4 and 5, Paul is instructing Timothy regarding overseers and elders in the church, um, and we see that the household is so important to God that in order to be qualified as an overseer in the church, a man must manage his own household well to set an example for the rest of the body. In verse 4, He says, he must be one who manages his own household well. How? Keeping his children under control with all diligence, or with all uh, dignity. And uh, verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Again, we see that um, that's how important household relationships are to God. So as you read your Bible, you cannot deny God places high concern on his word, on our hearts, and on household relationships, right? All right, turn to Titus 2. Titus 2, um, we're all pretty familiar with that, and this is where women are addressed. And there's going to be a whole morning um, where we'll be focusing on Titus 2 later on. Um, But Titus 2, 3 
Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to, and then now see how he focuses on the household, love their husbands, love their children, and be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Do you see the main concern? It's God's word. It's God's word. A woman's faithfulness in her household is of great significance in the gospel mission. As a woman cares well for her own heart, as she shepherds her heart and is faithful in those household relationships, it impacts the way others speak of God's word. So after surveying the Old Testament, and working our way into the New Testament, how could we not be concerned, not only about our own hearts, but about our household relationships as well? Because we see how um, it's very important to God, right? All right, now we're going to look at number two on your outline. Are you guys doing okay, or would you like to take a five-minute break? Keep going? Okay. All right, let's look at an Old Testament example of a woman who grasped uh, God's heart for the family and the home. Let's turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth's life took place during the time when there um, was no king in Israel. It was uh, when the judges ruled, and the book of Judges, right before Ruth, Joshua Judges Ruth, um, ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the spiritual climate. No submission to God, no submission to authority. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And in the midst of this dark period in history, Ruth's life was a refreshing exception to that. In Ruth 1, we find a man named Elimelech. And uh, he takes his wife Naomi and his sons and moves to Moab because there's a famine in Israel. And then he dies. And after that, his sons marry Moabite women. And then the sons die. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like for Naomi? But she heard the famine was over in Israel. She heads home. Naomi encourages her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab with their own people, with their own culture. And one of them agrees to do so, Orpah. But Ruth, she clings to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And again, Naomi urges her, go back like your sister-in-law did, back to your people, back to your Moabite gods. But Ruth responds with a bold declaration of faith in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. For your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth declares that Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God of the Bible, is her God. And now listen what she says next. Where you die, I'll die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me or worse, if anything but death parts you from me. Ruth is prepared to leave her culture, to leave her land, to leave her language, to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. I mean, think about that. Leaving everything she knows to go and be with Naomi, her mother-in-law. In in Ruth's mind, to have Yahweh as her God meant being devoted to her mother-in-law. Ruth is is a beautiful role model of a woman whose heart was for God first, and she demonstrated that by loving her widowed mother-in-law, the same mother-in-law who encouraged her to stay there in Moab with her with the Moabite gods and find a husband the mother-in-law who by her own admission was a bitter woman you see that in verse 20 she returns to her home in Bethlehem and the other women say is this Naomi and in verse 20 Naomi says do not call me Naomi which means present call me Mara which is bitter for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me you know she's not just bitter but she's bitter with God And this proud, bitter woman is family to Ruth. And Ruth chooses to love her. 
Even though she was a foreigner and she had no idea what the future would bring, her love for God drove her to love Naomi. You can read the rest on your own or you'll get there um, in your reading plan, but how just how well she cares for Naomi and how beautifully it turns out. But we don't have time to keep going so we, because we need to keep going. Let's look at number three on your out, outline. And we're going to look at Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the home. Number three on your outline. Um, and you can read on your own the account of Eli and his sons in 1 Samuel. Eli failed as a father and as a spiritual leader. And God held Eli accountable for what his sons um, did. And for Eli, it, w- it was more important to, um, for Eli to please his sons than to honor God. And um, with so much emphasis on the household relationship, it's just important for us to remember it's not God's desire that we would set our household relationship up so high that we would honor our family over him. And then in 1 Kings 11, we see Solomon's example of how his heart was turned away from Yahweh and had all these wives and concubines from other nations. And Smedley talked about that on Sunday. And you can read that on your own. But... Um, Uh, What God said about that is uh, very interesting. He said that um, his heart was turned away from Yahweh and the the Lord was angry with Solomon. But now let's go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 21. And that is not on your outline, but go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 21. You can add it there. But after seeing Ruth, who understood God's heart for the home... We're now going to look at a couple of women who did not. We're going to look at Jezebel and Athaliah. And as you're turning there, um, here's a little context. God made um, David king over Israel, all 12 tribes after the death of Saul. And David was succeeded by his son Solomon as king, who was king over all the tribes. And then after Solomon died the kingdom was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is most often referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom is usually called Israel. Now Jezebel comes along um, about 75 years after the death of Solomon, and she marries King Ahab of the northern kingdom. And she was, So she was the daughter of a foreign king. Now remember back in Deuteronomy 7, 7 we saw that intermarrying with pagan nations was forbidden, right? Nonetheless, Ahab marries Jezebel and brought her to Israel to be queen. And with her, he brought false gods, false idolatrous worship, thus provoking God. So already we see this is not a man or a woman who understands God's heart for marriage, God's heart for the family. And um, now we know that Israel was plagued with idolatry throughout her history, but most of the time they did continue to give God some kind of lip service, but not Jezebel. She wanted to destroy worship of Yahweh. In 1 Kings 21, 4 and 5, we see that Jezebel finds out that her husband is sullen and vexed. He's resentful and angry because this man, Naboth, he wouldn't sell him his vineyard. So Jezebel schemes to uh, get the people to kill Naboth so that Ahab can go steal his vineyard. And in, and in Israel, the land was supposed to be handed down from generation to generation, but Jezebel has no regard for the home. She has no regard for family, no regard for the ways of God. It was trivial for her to take a man's life, to murder, to get his land, and to rob his family of their inheritance. And in 1 Kings twenty-one twenty-five, it gives a commentary on Ahab after this incident. Surely... There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. What an indictment. Stop and think about that. This one woman, Jezebel, is responsible for Baal worship in Israel, persecution of God's prophets, murder of Naboth, robbery of a family's inheritance, inciting a king, her husband, to do evil, using and abusing her influence in the home. But sadly, that's not the end. Ahab and Jezebel, they had a daughter, Athaliah. 
And Athaliah marries Jehoram, a king in the southern kingdom. Now remember her father, Ahab, was a king in the northern kingdom. So sadly, Jezebel's wicked influence spread um, through her daughter. How? 2 Kings 8.18 says, Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his wife, Athaliah. So now we see a husband doing evil because of his wife, who had been influenced by her mother. And what kind of evil did he do? Well, 2 Chronicles 21.4 tells us that he had taken over the kingdom of his father. When he had taken over the kingdom, um, he killed all of his brothers. Then Jehoram and Athaliah, they had a son, Ahaziah. I really had to practice all of those names. Believe me. <laughs> he also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his mother's family. It's kind of hard to keep straight, but so far we see Jezebel's evil influence on Ahab, the king of Israel, her disregard for Naboth and family, and then we see the evil influence passed on to her daughter, Athaliah, who had an evil influence on her husband, the king of Judah, and now we see it extended to Athaliah's son as well. A corrupted husband, murder, robbery, corrupted children, a man murdering his own brothers, more corruption um, of a husband and children. I mean, it's just the exact opposite of God's heart for the home and household relationships. He designed a home to be a place where his name is declared, where, where his mighty works are remembered, where they're taught, where they're praised, where one generation exhorts another generation to love God and obey him. But this family has turned the home into a place that spawns evil, even against one another. They rejected anything that had to do with God's heart for the household. And it keeps going. We're not done. Now you can turn to 2 Kings 11.1. In 2 Kings 10, um, Athaliah's son, King Ahaziah, is killed. And you can read read with me what happens next in 2 Kings 11.1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Do you see what this is saying? This is a grandmother who murdered her grandchildren. Stop and think about that. Athaliah annihilated her grandchildren. Why? So she could be in control. She wanted to be in charge she, so she could rule. She wanted the throne. Now, it's easy for us to think, wow, that's crazy. Jezebel and Athaliah are way more sinful than we are, right? There is no way I could do anything like that, and, and maybe not. But really, when we stop, and if we stop and think long enough, Um, Maybe we'll see areas in our own life of sin. Remember, even though God has given us new hearts and new desires, we still live in a mixed condition. We're not who we once were, right? Praise God. And we're not where we will be in eternity with him. No sin. But still, we still have a residue of sin. We're still battling sin today. And you know what? I know there are times in my own life when I want to be in control, when I want to rule, to control others, especially those in my household. Is that something that you struggle with? To grasp after what we want? Maybe sin to get it? See, we can still struggle with the same things, the same sin, and it's destructive. So we must guard our hearts above all else, our new hearts in their mixed condition and lay them bare before God's word and plead for a heart for our household that aligns with God's desire over our own. Ladies, we will. This is so important. We do have an impact on our household, for sure. We do. The question is, what kind of an impact? All right. We started with looking at the relationship between the heart 
and household relationships in scripture. And then we saw the way Ruth's heart for God impacted her household in a beautiful way. And now we've seen just how destructive it is when there's rejection of God's heart for the household relationships. It's so important to understand God's heart for the household and see the impact that we have in those relationships in our home. Now let's move on to number four, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy 8. And as you're turning there, here's a little context. We're back on the plains of Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. This is just 40 years after they left uh, slavery in Egypt. And this is Moses' warning to the Israelites in verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he is, has given you. And then he says, beware, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. So he's telling Israel, Israel, when you're enjoying the blessings of God and things are going really well, he says, beware, beware. That's the time to be concerned. That's when you'll be tempted to forget God. And this, and this is really not about, he's not talking about um, failing to recall that he exists. It's acting as though he doesn't exist. And then verse 12, lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, here's the warning, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God's warning them ahead of time. The household that God is giving them, where he is blessing them so richly, is where they needed to be aware of the danger they were in. They needed to guard against pride, to guard against forgetting who their provider was and what he had done. And we need to be aware of the danger and guard our hearts the very same way, of the very same thing, to guard against pride and to forget God, our provider, you know, especially when things are going well in our households. We too need to be aware of the danger and guard against it. And thankfully in Christ, our household can be, become a platform, a platform for impacting everyone who lives there, impacting everyone who enters with the gospel, regardless of season of life, regardless of circumstance, whether prosperity or hardship, we must not forget his provision, the provision of our highest treasure, Christ. We, we get God, so we don't want to forget God in our household. Number, let's look at number five on your, uh, on your outline, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. Um, we're not going to look at Acts 10 this morning, but I encourage you to read about Cornelius on your own, where just one man longing for God can be an instrument for the gospel in his household. But now let's look at Acts 16. In Acts 16, this is where Paul and Silas, they were traveling from city to city in Europe and Asia, strengthening the churches, and they came to Philippi. And here's where we read about Lydia. Starting in verse 13, Luke says, on, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the, woman, to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of perf- purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord... You judge me to be a believer. Come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. See, Lydia believed in the God of Israel. God divinely brings, divinely brings Paul and Silas to her, um, where she and her household were gathering for prayer. <clears throat> and in vor- and verse fourteen tells us that the Lord opened her heart to the things spoken by Paul. So we can conclude Lydia already believed in this Messiah, anticipated, but. Paul most likely told her that Messiah had come, so her faith was transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known. As a believer in God, she already understood, we see, the concern that she was to have in her household. She would have known the scripture. 
And we see she had a connection to her household and that they were with her when Paul spoke. And uh, we know that their faith was also transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known from verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful, come and stay in my house. So we see Lydia's concern from the beginning for her household and the impact of her faith. All right, now let's look down at verse 29. And we'll see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. Sometime later, Paul and Silas, they're thrown in jail because of the big uprising in Philippi beginning in Acts 16, 19. Um, This is where they had received several beatings. They were in a dark, smelly prison. Their feet were clamped into stocks. Um, They were very uncomfortable. They were bloody. They were broken and uh, bruised men in great pain. And remember, what do we find them doing? Were they grumbling and complaining? Were they stewing over their circumstance? Were they stewing over being persecuted unjustly? No, they were worshiping. They were worshiping. I love what Scott said on this passage. He said, the best missionaries are undetoured worshipers. The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. Isn't that good? The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. So then we see this violent, there's a violent earthquake, all the doors open, and the prisoners' chains came loose, all serving God's purpose for his servants. The Philippian, Philippian jailer assumes that everyone has escaped, which it would have meant that um, he would have been executed as a consequence for failing his duties as a jailer. And so he's about to kill himself when Paul called out uh, to assure him, don't harm yourself, we're all here. So he shows the jailer compassion. And then the jailer asks after that, the only reasonable question after witnessing what had just taken place, he calls to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What an important, significant question. He didn't ask like, what in the world just happened? <laughs> right? He knew. He knew. And how did they answer? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So he brings the prisoners to his household. We see the jailer's connection there to his household because they were there by verse 32 and they heard the answer to the question as well what, would, what must I do to be saved and that night a whole household was changed forever he took them and verse 33 says he took them that very hour of the night washed their wounds so he went from fastening their feet into stocks to showing compassion and immediately he was baptized he and his household and he brought them into his house that food before them They rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So one man, one man gets saved and it impacts an entire household. What seemed like something terrible that was about to happen to Paul and Silas was actually God's plan all along. God's plan was to bring the gospel to the jailer and to save him and his household. So we see the impact that the jailer, just one person seeking after the Lord, being saved, made on an entire household. And you know, God desires that we do the same, that we bring the gospel into our household each and every day as well. And to do this effectively, we must be sure that we are soaking in the truth of the gospel daily, to be the hands and feet of Christ to those in our household, because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, because we love his word. And this requires daily dependence, doesn't it? Daily dependence on him. To ask him, God, if you would be pleased to take and change my whole household because of what you've done in me, through what you're doing in me, putting ourselves under his word, living as Christ's slave in our household. But you know what? There's an attack on the household. We're on number six on your outline. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, 1. Should it surprise us that there would actually be an attack on the household? If if there is this kind of link between our hearts and our household and what God wants to accomplish 
we shouldn't be surprised that the home is a place of, of attack by the enemy, right? Second Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be, be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Again, we see concern for the household relationships. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Why? Verse 6, for among them are those who enter into households, and then what do they do in those households? Captivate weak women. Why are they weak? They're weak because they're weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. These are women who, in verse 7, we see are always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So evidently, there are women in these homes that don't know how the word of God, how the gospel addresses their sin. Therefore, they're still weighed down by their sin. They're weak and they're susceptible they're being led by their impulses and by their desires. They weren't well equipped to know how to deal with their sin, how to deal with their impulses and desires, with the truth of the gospel and the realities of the gospel's impact on their lives. They're always learning something, but it's not heart-impacting learning. It's not heart-shepherding to the Word of God learning to get the knowledge of the truth. So you know what? They're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to attack. Ladies, this is a sobering warning for us. We have to be vigilant because attacks against the Christian household often come disguised to look benign, to look harmless to us. So let's think, what, who might be creeping into our homes in our day, in our generation? We know our culture has a very strong, loud voice, and it comes to us in our TVs and social media and blogs and books, magazines, in our education, educational systems, and even sermons, telling us to give in to our impulses, give in to our desires, telling us to be a lover of self. Um, they want us to believe that it's healthy, and we deserve to put ourselves first. There's a self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed message, message saying that that's how you solve your problems. With no gospel answers, no gospel power, even in a lot of materials that cloak themselves with the word Christian. We have to be careful. We have to scrutinize everything we read, everything we watch or listen to, and we have to put it under the authority of God's word. We need to guard what we're keeping out, and we also need to be purposeful in what we're putting in. Guard what we're keeping out and be purposeful with what we're putting in. That's why we spend so much time on Discipline One, because if we do not understand why and how to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use God's truth in the gospel to fuel our repentance and our growth and holiness, what can happen? We become weak. We, we too can become weak women. We can pose, and you know, you know what happens is then we can pose a threat to our household and to our church, to the gospel mission. So this is serious. We too can be vulnerable to believing lies, to drinking the world's Kool-Aid about whatever message they have, and then passing it right along to those closest to us. So it's a strong warning. We've got to guard against the attack and care and protect those who are living in our household and protect those who enter into our household. And you know what? I know so many of you are doing this well. You're doing it well. But we need to be reminded and hear and heed the warning to be aware. But we also need to guard against exalting the household above the gospel. Turn with me to Matthew 10. Matthew 10 34, we're on number seven on your outline, the family, the home can become an obstacle to the gospel. Starting in verse 34, Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I came to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemy will be the members of his household. Verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus is making a strong point that the gospel and his kingdom is first. And everything else and everyone else is second, including our family. So here's an example. Say in a household, the gospel invades one person and that person is transformed and she's called to bring the rest of the family, or the gospel, into the rest of the family. And sometimes um, other family members are saved or a whole household is saved, like, uh, like Lydia or the Philippian jailer. And we know that's in the Lord's hands. But Jesus is teaching that that's not always the case. For some of us, we might actually find that our family becomes divided, that there's conflict. Um, I've experienced this. And maybe some of you have too, and it's really difficult. But if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, believers are to follow Christ. We're to follow Christ, not the family, even while staying in the family, in that household. As she displays the changes Christ has made in her, as she loves her family, as she serves her family, she forgives and seeks forgiveness in that family and submits appropriately. So we need to keep reminding ourselves that our identity is in Christ first. Our identity um, in a wife or a mom or a grandma is not first. Our identity in Christ is greater than our household or family identity. And that is just, that's the only reason we can love, <laughs> the only reason we can esteem and serve those closest to us, regardless of their reaction regardless because of the gospel's impact on our lives we see god places a huge priority on the household and so should we but never above our identity in christ practically if i put my identity in christ under my family identity um there are ways that might be displayed in my household. I might find myself saying things like, you know, our family is just the way we do things. We always are angry at Thanksgiving and, you know, we always um, during the holidays do this and, um, you know, we, wh or whatever, um, as an excuse to sin. Um, or hanging on to family traditions in ways. Um, for us, we have family members um, from a different, from a false religion, where at times we may have to make some decisions. Um, but we do that with love, and we do it with grace, but we are Christ's first. There's no better way to love those in your household than to keep your affection for him first in your heart. And you know the gospel and the power of the gospel in you enables you to love and to shine the light of Jesus in the midst of your family, even if you are the only believer there. Okay, let's turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, we're on number 8 in your outline. Hang in there. You guys doing okay? Okay. We're on number 8. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the gospel. So here's another household relationship, marriage. All right, so whether you're married or not, this is important. Your understanding of biblical marriage is so important. It's key. Our culture fights hard to make a mockery of Christian marriage. So it's our responsibility to see the beauty of the gospel portrayed in Christian marriage. And again, we see God's heart for the household in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. How? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the, Christ is subject, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So when we think about marriage, we are to think about uh, Christ and the church. We all need to treasure and support and build up biblical marriage. 
and how we think about marriage and how we talk about marriage and how we respond to marriage and how we talk about our husbands or anyone else's husband. Understanding submission changes from being that dreaded word to a beautiful word picture of how Christ again and again submitted himself to the will of the Father. Just as husbands are to submit themselves to the headship of the Lord and wives are, are to submit themselves to their husbands, we are to submit to Christ in everything. So see, a wife looks beyond her husband to Christ out of reverence for Jesus in light of all he's done for us and in us and through the gospel. We submit to Christ and we submit to our husbands. Your husband's your leader. And when we struggle to trust our earthly leader, we can still follow him because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. He's sovereign. He's good. And that is where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands. And it's where we encourage one another to do the same thing. We all are here to encourage one another to do the same thing. And you know what? There will be more teaching on this uh, later this year. And then uh, number nine on your outline, a New Testament model marriage is Priscilla and Aquila. Their marriage is a great uh, New Testament model. They serve together with Paul. And you can read that on your own later. Uh, But we need to wrap up. So as we do, what are we seeing in all of this? We've seen um, God's inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our home. We've seen that uh, the woman who loves God places a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, We've seen that as a faithful believer in the gospel, we're to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our household. We're to guard our hearts and protect our household and root out false thinking um, or any thinking that could come in and deceive us and negatively influence our families. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, what is the spiritual climate in your home? Do we see how much is at stake when we think about the next generation and the reputation of God's Word? Our obedience in our homes is essential for exalting God's design and His gospel work. And you know, I've got to tell you, our household relationships can also be the place of our biggest failures. My household is often the place of my greatest failures, my deepest regrets, because of my own sin. Um... As I um, live as a sinner saved by God's grace, I live with a sinner saved by God's grace. Um, There are times when I, too, can be provoking. I can seek control. I want to rule others. I want my own way. Um, And there are many regrets. Ah, As I look back on my life, you know, and um, if you do, too, be encouraged with me. We don't lose hope. We do not lose hope. It's not too late. It's not too late. Our homes are the perfect showcase for the gospel today. Perfect showcase for the gospel in you and through you even now. It's where we seek forgiveness, where we extend forgiveness where we love and we serve those whom God has in your home today and those who enter into your home. It's God's grace to us that he would bring us to the end of ourselves so that he gets the glory for the work he's doing in us as we grow, as we grow in being a gospel aroma in our homes. None of us have this wired We're growing. Remember the yellow person or the gray person turning to yellow? We're all growing in that chart. As we learn to trust our trustworthy Savior in our household, regardless 
of how others respond. The gospel is that powerful. It's that powerful to enable us to love the people in our household and those who enter because God loved us first. So as we look at what God's word says about the home, you know what? It may expose regret and failure. It may expose sin. But when God exposes sin, believer, it's for the purpose of restoration with him and with others. And that's his grace to us. It's good. So we plead with God to develop his love in our hearts, to be undetoured worshipers in our homes, knowing his inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes. Let's encourage one another to take advantage of every opportunity God gives us to love and care for those in our household and in those household relationships um, with those who enter into our home into your sphere of influence as we seek to display the gospel's impact in our own hearts. Let's pray. Father, that is our desire, that we would honor you, that we would think rightly about our own hearts and about your word and the impact that we have on the next generation, um, the gospel influence in our home. Help us, Lord, now as we go to discussion groups to care well for one another with the truth from your word. Thank you that um, we do not lose hope, that our hope is in you, and you have given us everything we need for life and godliness um, because you have saved us. Thank you that we're your children, and we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. And uh, we just we praise you, and we thank you for your powerful word in, uh, that we have uh, learned this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.